Happy Saturday. It's April 17th, 2021, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker, the style editor of Airmail. I'm Michael Haney, one of the deputy editors here at Airmail. Good morning, Ashley. Good morning, Michael. (laughs) How are you? I'm very good. How are you? I'm fantastic. I mean, look, I've already had lunch twice at Via Corotta this week, and the week is not even over. What's there to hate about life? That's pretty good. And Hmm. one of them was with me. One of them was with you. That's right. New York is hot. It is back. It's impossible to get a table at Via Corotta. I'm not really sure how we managed. Oh, I actually do know how we made it happen, which is that we went with Graydon. That always helped. It's been great. I finally got to see you guys in person. It was awesome. It was. It's, uh, again, one of those tiptoe steps of optimism. Life is coming back to normal, Michael, and it feels great. It does. It does feel good. So what do, what do we got this week for our fun listeners? Okay, first we have to talk about Donald Trump's money man and his son's divorce and what implications that could have for Trump. So please take us through this entire story because we've got the second half of the series in the issue this week, and it's high time that you explain it to us. Sure. This is a fantastic piece of reporting uh, by Joanna Berkman. We ran... Part one last week, part two is is dropped this week. And in a nutshell, this is the story of Alan Weisberg, who has been for decades is the Trump org's money man, the CFO there. And a very quiet little bespectacled mustachioed man from Long Island who has kept the books and and basically, as one one said, was the eyes and ears of Donald Trump financially. And uh, when Trump became president, Weisberg also sort of like took on, of course, the full responsibilities for, for the org. But in one of the strange wrinkles of life. It now appears that Weisselberg's son, a divorce that he's been going through for the last few years, business son Barry from his ex-wife Jennifer, has given Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance and the New York State Attorney General Letitia James, both of whom are pre- um, have been uh, leading these investigations and both of whom, as I remind you, recently got access to Trump's tax returns thanks to the Supreme Court ruling. They have They've gotten visibility really into the Trump org's finances because of this divorce. And what has happened is uh, Barry, who is Alan's son, was for years, his job was kind of the overseer manager of the Woolman slash Trump ice skating rink in Central Park. And uh, it came out in the divorce proceedings under sworn testimony that they'd been living living in this apartment that was very possibly paid for by the Trump organization. There was, and, and at the same time, his job was basically to take all the cash from Woman Rink and walk it over to his father's office at Trump Tower. So there's a lot of, let's say, speculation that this was something financially shady. And because all this is now court record and how the money was moving and what it was used for and how Barry and Jennifer at the time were living. It's given prosecutors a real kind of uh, potential roadmap into how money was moved through the Trump org. So it's a fantastic piece of reporting by Joanna. And uh, it's, again, as I say, leading to a lot of speculation that uh, it, it allows you know, in much like prosecutors with Al Capone back in the in the twenties and thirties, they didn't get him for all his crimes. They got him for tax evasion, and uh, it looks like this is kind of the wedge that the prosecutors need to get into Trump. What a story, Michael! I mean, yeah. Joanne has been working on this for a while, right? Like, this is a pretty 
significant piece of reporting. She's been working on it for a while and uh, has gotten to know Jennifer quite well. They Their, their children are in the same school on the uh, up in Manhattan there. And, uh, you know, inside it, there's also this tragic story of this divorce and kind of the Trump playbook of really destroying someone. This is, as Joanna reminds us, this is what happens in Trump world, whether you're Michael Cohen or Stephanie Winston Walkoff, who is the former one-time best friend, so quote-unquote, of Melania, plans the inauguration and then gets hung out to dry for the cost overruns at the inauguration. So there's, there is a kind of playbook here that the, the, um, the Trump org does when it comes to women or comes to people who go against them. So there's also the human cost and, and, and Joanna gets into that as well with them. It's a great piece. I highly recommend it. Yeah. Michael, let's move on to either you choose. Are we going to move on to hotels or dating? Uh, let's move on to dating because dating oftentimes leads to hotels. And divorce. But and divorce. Let's, exactly. let's not get too dark too early in the episode here. Exactly. Uh, Julia Vitale, one of our wonderful editors, tackled a great piece this week by Sarah Dedham about Bumble. This is the brainchild of Whitney Wolf Heard. It's 31-year-old founder. She's based in Austin, Texas, and now she's a billionaire thanks to the IPO of Bumble. And it's kind of a brilliant idea that she had, which is to put online dating in the hands of women and allow them to make the first move in terms of the matching piece of it. So uh, Bumble has grown from there exponentially. Not only is it, you know, just a dating app, it also is a networking app and it has all these other sort of tentacles of the business. Uh, but our, our writer this week, Sarah Dedham, asked the question, is Bumble too woke for its own good? How does it work? What's wrong with it? How is it marketed to the masses? It's a it's kind of a fascinating piece. What did you make of it all? Well, what's what's I think fascinating as well, and to this is where the, the wrinkle in the Bumble story happens, is she, before she started Bumble, she was one of the original uh, people behind Tinder. 2012, she was one of the co-founders of Tinder, right? Uh, which was, uh, and she was helping to market it to, 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 to college people and things like that. And she started dating her co-founder, Justin Mateen. But then two years later, she filed this sexual harassment suit against the company, alleging that Mateen, who was by then her ex, had called her a whore quote, unquote, whore in a meeting. Tinder denied wrongdoing, reportedly settled with Wolf for what was a million dollars plus stock. She then takes that and says, you know what? I'm going to make an app that's for women only. And Bumble is the thing that starts that. And now, as I said, kind of went public, turned into a $16 billion stock listing. So the wrinkle is that in order to establish Bumble, Wolf heard needed a partner. She finds one in a Russian billionaire named Andrei Andreev, who it's now revealed has significant problems. As In Forbes, they ran a detailed investigation that alleged that he had overseen a culture of sex or harassment at Bumble's parent company, Badoo. Uh, worse, Wolf Hurd's initial response was kind of out of kilter with the Me Too moment, where she said, oh, he's become family and one of my best friends, she told Forbes at the time. So, now it's kind of, you know, we're in this world where maybe Bumble's not woke enough for what people expect it to be, right? Yeah, but what I find so fascinating about this is there are 1.2 million users of Bumble and they're all paying something, right? And some people are even paying for the premium option of $7.99 a day. That's like my cappuccino habit, Michael, in New York City. Like, that's what it costs you, $7.99 a day. And I'm always trying to shave that off the budget. Like, can you imagine paying $8 a day to improve your chances of matching with someone on a dating app? It's kind of stunning. I, I like, I don't even want to do the math on that, but it's so interesting. And then it turns out that 
there's this irony there, which is that, you know, this girl power dream of Bumble is ultimately serving a user base that's 73% male. All I know is you and I don't have to worry about that, Ashley. <laughs> Not yet, Michael. You never know what the future could hold. Whoa. No, I'm why kidding. Are so I'm kidding. I'm kidding. The other one has to answer to David tonight. That's not me. Was- I know. Honey, I love you, honey. I love you forever. Funny thing, though, I, Alessandra and I had lunch at Via Corona this week uh, with a wonderful writer and content creator in the food space. Anyway, she's great. She's telling us all about Raya. Did you know this, Michael, that all you put on your Raya profile is a gallery of photos and a song? Let's just back up for some people who aren't as cool as you are. Tell us what Raya is. Raya is a buy invite only dating app. And whenever someone tells me that, I just say, well, don't you remember when like Gmail was by invite only? Facebook was by invite only. Everything has been by invite only. But Raya is quite exclusive and small. Let me get some seats on that. Raya is, it's a, it's again, it's just a reminder that it's not just what, you know, attributed the old Frank Zappa line at the party. There's always another room, but this is, it might be by invitation only, but I call these things like by anxiety inducing only like, uh, uh, am I in? Uh, Can I get in? Uh, uh." Like it just preys on your insecurities, all these things. Yeah. It's known to be kind of, it's known to be the dating app for celebrities. Channing Tatum was on there at one point. John Mayer was on there. Cara Delevingne was on there. And, uh, There is a global committee of 500 people that invites you or approves your application, uh, which requires referrals. And you have to stand out in order to win over the committee. You've got to be an expert. You have to be known in something. I mean, come on. It's absurd. It's like, come on. It's very clubby, right? Do we really believe an exclusive committee of 500 people (laughs) reviewing your application? Oh my God. Oh my God. All right. If any of our listeners are on Raya, DM us and tell us about your experience because we want to know all about it. And also tell us what your song is. Michael, what would your Raya song be? You're so vain. I don't know. What would yours be? I'd probably make it the theme song to Morning Meeting, Michael. There you go. The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet would be my Raya song. Perfect choice. Perfect choice. All right. Well, moving on, because dating often leads to hotels. Let's talk about the Hotel Ducap. Let's. Because we've got a great piece by Graydon this week about it, right? We have a great piece by Graydon about it. He's a regular at the Hotel Ducap. He's been throwing parties there and visiting there for many years. And there is now a new book about it uh, called Hotel Ducap, Eden Rock, A Timeless Legend on the French Riviera. And Graydon has written the introduction to that and we have excerpted it in the issue this week. I love, I just have to read some of his piece because it's so great. He says, I will say right from the outset that the dinners I threw at the Hotel Ducap over the years, and I held a number of them, were evenings of such pleasure and exuberance and glamour that had I not been the host, I most I would most certainly never have been invited. And he's talking about the Vanity Fair party that he used to throw during the Cannes Film Festival. He says, you know, there are grander hotels in the Hotel du Cap. There are more expensive hotels in the Hotel du Cap. There's no hotel with such subtleties of setting, purpose and service like the Hotel du Cap. It stands by itself on the clip on the cliffs of Cap d'Antibes, a world apart. The reason we're taking such a close look at the Hotel du Cap is because it's celebrating its 150th anniversary this year. That makes it 20 years older than Raffles, 30 years older than the Paris Ritz. And Graydon says it looks as fresh as when Slim Aarons took that iconic photograph of the pool area in 1976. It definitely makes you want to be there right now. Perhaps this summer, Michael. Probably not, but we can dream. I've never stayed there. I've, I've walked the grounds, but never stayed there. You've you've walked the grounds. Tell me more. I w- I'll tell you very briefly a funny story. Please. A couple years ago, I 
went to the Cannes Film Festival for the opening of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the Quentin Tarantino film. And I was staying in town. I had a day and night to myself after I'd done the event or gone to the premiere. I'd written about the, and I'd written about, I'd done an interview for uh, the magazine at the time with Quentin, Leonardo DiCaprio, and Brad Pitt. Went to the party the night before, ran into some of them, blah, blah, blah. And I thought to myself the next day, I'm, who knows when I'm going to be back here? And I've never seen this hotel. And I thought, you know what? I want to go there and I'm just going to have a drink in the bar. I just want to see it. And, and so I went, took a car over there, talked my way onto the grounds because they went, they were having some exclusive event and uh, went to the bar, had an espresso, just took it all in. And they're like, I'm just going to walk the grounds. I just want to see it. I just want to breathe the air. And it is as gorgeous as Graydon describes it, of course. It just is, it's, it's Edenic, uh, to use a word. And uh, as I'm walking back into the hotel, there's this revolving door that opens up onto the whole, and it's sort of like there's this long walkway that then spills out towards the Mediterranean. So I'm walking back up. There's no one else but myself. I'm coming back into the revolving so I'm, I'm about to go to the revolving door. The revolving door spins out, and I literally like bump chest to chest into who but Brad Pitt. Oh, and- be still my heart. And he says, Mike, what are you doing here? And I said, uh, uh, you know, I, I mean, I said, well, I just, uh, came to, uh, meet someone for a drink at the bar. He's like, oh, so nice to see you. Hey, it was great seeing you last night. And I said, yeah, it was nice seeing you too. So I, and he said, I said, what are you doing? He said, I got to go meet someone down there for a coffee. So that was it. But it was, you know what? That's the kind of place the hotel cop is. You might just run into Brad Pitt, have a nice casual conversation on the, on the patio there. So that was my, that's my memory. Yeah. You know, I, that's what I love about hotels is those random encounters. Speaking of celebrities, we have a funny story from Cassie David this week, Michael, one of our columnists, and she talks about nine things that celebrities could sell us that will not destroy our oceans. No, what, what I like about Cassie's piece is like, and she's right. And, and she points out like all these celebrities are selling all this stuff. That's, I get it. They want to make money. But, you know, she points out uh, so much of the beauty packaging and, and, and she says, this is an actual statistic, 95% of beauty packaging is thrown away after one use. And most of this stuff ends up in the ocean, plastic, blah, blah. So like really we want quote, we want quote unquote clean beauty. And yet Kendall Jenner and everyone else is making a lot of trash. So there's other ways to think about how to make something that benefits us, right? Yeah, absolutely. And the best tip that I've ever heard about how to, you know, how to be more sustainable as a consumer is simply to buy less, right? Which exactly. it seems like that way of thinking has really gone out the window in the pandemic as we've all started hoarding things and ordering everything to our house, right? Like a year and a half ago, I would have been completely appalled by the notion that I would be, you know, using Clorox wipes all the time and throwing them away. And yet that has become part of our new reality. So I think there is going to be a reset in place after this pandemic where we start thinking again about the way that we have been generating trash and disposing of it. And of course, as everything Kazi writes, it's it's got plenty of humor to it. So she also recommends that celebs start selling us biodegradable coffins. You know, Prince Philip is going to be buried in a uh, biodegradable coffin. Yeah, he's going to be carried in a wool coffin on an electric Land Rover. This coffin costs $1,200, which by the way is very inexpensive as far as wait, coffins wait, is it, is it, God, we've gotten wool? very dark here, Michael. Did you say wool or wood? Wool. Wool. Okay, so I was, I was right. Yeah, it, it's cloth, right? So It's actually quite beautiful. We should probably uh, look into this company further, but it's called A.W. Hainsworth and they manufacture these beautiful wool coffins that actually, frankly, look like, they kind of look like packing cubes. 
They're really beautifully done. And this brand has also made the military uniforms that were worn by Prince William and Prince Harry at their weddings. And it's kind of gorgeous, I have to say. Okay, well, Michael, you know what? We've taken a fairly dark turn on morning meeting talking about biodegradable coffins. All right, Michael. Well, we're very lucky we're here. We've got Bethany McLean to talk about something we used to talk about a lot more before the pandemic. And it's kind of gone up. Well, let's just dive right into the Sackler family and Bethany's latest piece for airmail. Hi, Bethany. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on the show. I am smiling at the um, appearance of your daughter because mine may make a similar appearance or you may hear a dog barking <laughs> Welcome to Zoom Life, right? <laughs> yeah. So, Bethany, you've got your review this week of Empire of Pain, the new book by Patrick Radden Keefe, right? So, we've kind of all known what the Sackler family has done, which is what the book focuses on. And I think, as you point out in your review this week in the, in the issue, that I think almost a half million Americans have died in or opioid overdoses since quote unquote pain management was invented in 1996. There's so many fascinating elements about the book that you've pointed out. What sticks in your mind most about the Sackler? family and what they did with OxyContin? Well, what sticks in my mind about this book is actually the family at the heart of Purdue. And until Patrick Redden keeps peace in The New Yorker, and I think a piece in Esquire ran around the same time, there really hadn't been all that much focus on the family behind Purdue. So it was really his work that helped pull them into the spotlight that they deserved. And what stood out to me is the rationalization and self-delusion that they employed in order to keep selling a drug that they knew probably pretty early on was addictive, contrary to their marketing promises, and that it was soon clear that it was also killing people. It wasn't just addictive, it was killing people. And when you think about what it takes to look the other way and continue to sell a product where the risks are so high, we all say to ourselves, we we would never do that. And I hope we wouldn't. But the, the wonderful thing about the way Patrick Radenkeef tells this story is that you see the self-delusion up close and you understand how they were able to convince themselves that they had brought this great gift to the world. Which I think is, as as I saw in one of the notes about the book, that let's just frame this. The family made $13 billion off of opioids, basically, right? It's somewhere between four and 13. I'm not sure which is the right number. And there's a big gap. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, a big gap. It was Actually, if you had $4 billion, doesn't matter if you have $13 billion. I don't know. Anyway, the attorney general of Massachusetts was the first one to say the family had pulled over $4 billion out of Purdue. And a later figure put the number at close to $13 billion. And I'm not sure which number is accurate, but it was somewhere over $4 billion. Um, you also talk in, in, in the piece about just, I think, some of the, the 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 lessons that can be learned now 20 some years later about after sort of with all this time about what it offers for our world now. And I'd love if you could sort of share some of those lessons that you see with the listeners. Well, so to me, the most chilling line in Patrick's book is a line where he talks about the, how the entire system was corrupted and how this story shows that the entire apparatus of American capitalism can basically be corrupted. With, with enough money. And I think we all knew that, but this story demonstrates that on a visceral level because the Sackler family has always defended the selling of OxyContin by saying, well, the, the FDA approved it. The FDA allowed the language that we put on it. Doctors prescribed it to their patients. So doctors believed this too. So this isn't us. This is us meeting a need. And these people with the responsibility to say no all said yes. This isn't our fault. But as other people 
people have shown, and as Patrick shows in, in this book, the Sacklers essentially, Purdue essentially worked so closely with the FDA and getting OxyContin approved and getting the, the labeling for it that it's hard to know who where the, where the line was drawn between the two institutions. And yes, doctors prescribed it to their patients, but with a hefty marketing budget from Purdue, which just had money going in all sorts of different directions, some camouflage to these pain management organizations that would then pay doctors to say this drug is great. So in a way, the whole system was bought and paid for. Bethany, one of the things that strikes me about the Sacklers is despite all of this great journalism we've had, and despite the fact that it seems so obvious to so many of us that these people are complete villains, they seem to have gotten off uh, in certain ways. I mean, obviously there have been some punitive lawsuits and things like that in the past few years, but certainly with the pandemic, we're just not reading as much about them as we used to. How do you think this book will change that? So I don't, just to be clear, I don't see them as as complete villains. I see them as Shakespearean, almost in their display of very human flaws. And there were plenty of other enablers and bad actors in the opioid story, too. In some ways, the Sacklers make such a good story. That said, OxyContin was, was first. And I think Patrick Radden Keefe shows in this book pretty convincingly that if it weren't for OxyContin, we wouldn't have the opioid problem that we do. The other thing um, Patrick Radden he does so well. This book is fascinating is the, the sort of family, the founder of the family was a guy named Arthur Sackler, and he was responsible for marketing Valium and making it into the country's first $100 million drug. And he said exactly a version of this when he was selling Valium, that people who got addicted, well, they were just prone to addiction. It wasn't the fault of the drug. It was the fault of the people who took it. And that's exactly what his nephew, Richard Sackler, would say years later. So I want to talk about the Sackler's restructuring plan. You might have seen, Bethany, a few weeks ago, ago, they filed a 300-page long restructuring plan. This is the company's formal bid to end the thousands of lawsuits against uh, Purdue Pharmaceuticals. And they're pledging to pay $4.275 billion from their personal fortune, which is, uh, you know, $1.3 billion more than their original offer to reimburse the states and municipalities and tribes and all of these plaintiffs from a cost from costs that were associated with the epidemic. How does that strike you? Do you think that's fair? I don't know how much money the Sacklers have left and how much they made from the money, how much they made in investment returns from the money they took out of Purdue. But I do think at the end of the day, there is a very cold calculus that needs to be made is some degree, do you want moral retribution or do you want money? And I think people have to decide which which one they want. And if they want the moral retribution of trying to wipe the Sacklers out and destroy their fortune. That's one thing. If they want the money to pay to pay for hopefully facilities and help for people who are addicted and to, to help end the scourge for once and for all, then maybe that they want to take the money. I guess I'm a bit of a pragmatist at the end of the day, and I think it makes sense to take the money, accepting that it's never going to feel perfectly fair. Well, it sounds like quite the read, Bethany, a very important book, and we really enjoyed your review. Thank you. I, I, it's a topic that has fascinated me for a long time, and the book is the book is not just a tale of the opioid scourge, but it's but it's also a, a story of a family, and it's very Shakespeare, modern Shakespeare. Thank you, Bethany. And when should we look forward for, to your book then? <laughs> Hopefully by this time next year. Fingers crossed. Awesome. Right. It's no pressure, we, but we're 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 excited about it. My publisher is offering plenty of pressure, so <laughs> I didn't mean to make you stress blush. I'm going to go have a beer now. 
What can you recommend this week for me? So, Michael, I haven't finished this yet, but I am in the throes of Blake Bailey's new biography of Philip Roth. It's long; it's eight hundred pages long. So, uh, let's if I get if I get it finished by next week, that's a huge accomplishment. But it's not likely. But this is fascinating. It's just a fascinating book. Philip Roth, as we know, had a very tormented relationship with the notion of a biography, and he has a a lot of broken relationships in his past. And Bailey goes into all of it, and it's an incredible feat of reporting and literary criticism and and all of that rolled into one. But it's essential reading for anyone, not only who is a fan of Ross' work, but also who's curious about that particular period of American history that he captured so well. Cool. And he chose... It's kind of sexy too. But he chose Bailey, right? He approved him, yeah. Yeah, he he approved him. God, he died in... He died in 2018. I mean, doesn't that seem like a century ago? Roth made many, many efforts to control his legacy and he, he certainly wanted to be involved in his biography to the best extent of his abilities. And he did appoint Blake Bailey to the role. And Bailey was guaranteed independence in terms of the editorial process, but he also had full access to all of his letters and, you know, material and detritus and all of that good stuff. So David Remnick had a great piece in The New Yorker. I don't know if you had a chance to read it yet. What's The New Yorker? Anyway, so uh, it's a good time to revisit Roth. And, you know, also, why not revisit Goodbye Columbus? Contrary to what we might have published in the headline in Airmail last week, uh, Philip Roth has not yet been canceled in death. But um, it's it's a certainly very interesting to look at it again as, as a relic of that time. We'll see where you land next week after you finish it. Will do. What about you, Michael? Do you have anything at all? Anything. I've got two things. One, taking advantage of being vaccinated and the city kind of reopening again. We went up to the Metropolitan Museum last weekend and saw what I think is in what everyone is sort of in New York. This is for, but I hope I hope this show travels around the country after it finishes at the Metropolitan Museum. It's the retrospective of Alice Neal, uh, who was a painter for many of you who don't know, and she died in uh, in the early 80s. But she was a figurative painter through the six, 50s, 60s, and 70s at a time, of course, when abstract expression and pop art were dominant. And this show is truly amazing. I think, you know, I think it's, as many people have said, it kind of places her in that pantheon now with Francis Bacon and Lucien Freud. And she's kind of destined now, I think, to enter that replace. It's the portraits in here and her use of color and composition. It's so beautiful. It's this sort of just the thing you want to see right now. And But her life was unbelievably layered. She had her share of tragedies, uh, lost a child. One of her early lovers destroyed much of her work. But the the people she paints from average people, average children in Spanish Harlem to there's a fantastic portrait of Andy Warhol, who sort of stripped to the waist, showing the kind of roadmap of surgical scars that he was left with after Valerie Solanas had tried to kill him. But they're done almost with this, even though they're all in color and these people are in it, but you know, they're as powerful as almost these Diane Arbor or Avedon photographs that, that she was of that period as well. So I really can't encourage you enough if you live in New York or the area to go see it. And I, I do hope that this show travels. Beautiful, beautiful New York. I've been dying to see that. Have you had a chance to go to the New York Botanical Garden to see the Yayoi Kusama? We're exhibition? doing that this weekend. We're doing that this yeah. weekend. Oh, I want to try to go this weekend too. Maybe we can, Maybe we can hang together. Coordinated trip. Uh, this is a new exhibition called Cosmic Nature. And in it, uh, the storied Japanese artist Yayoi Kasama explores her fascination with the natural world. Um, she spent her childhood, in fact, in greenhouse 
greenhouses and fields. Her family had a seed nursery. And that was the genesis of the germination, if you will, of a lot of her ideas about art. So it's a really interesting amalgamation of worlds. I highly recommend everyone take a look at it, at least online and on Instagram, if you're not able to get there in person. And the the second, the last thing I want to recommend really quickly is kind of went back to a classic over the weekend. Uh, If you've never seen Michelangelo Antonioni's La Notte, which is, excuse me, which is the second in his trilogy, uh, which began with La Ventura and with La Clise. And this is with Jean Moreau and Marcello Mastriani, uh, came out 60 years ago, where I think they're sort of two of the screen's most melancholic beauties. And uh, this is them uh, sort of making their way through Milan, uh, going to a party one night. Uh, that's the simple premise of it. But, you know, I watch this film. There's there's so many moments of beauty in it. He's got the same cinematographer that Fellini was using. And if you've never seen it, Ashley, you'd love it for one scene, which Brooke and I both just turned to each other in the middle of it. Is There's a scene, I'm not spoiling anything, where Jean Moreau has left the party because he's now flirting with Monica Vitti and she ends up in this car with this guy and they're driving through this town in the pouring rain. And all you see is them inside the car in the pouring rain and you don't, you see them talking, you have no idea, there's no sound on them and it's just the water, the rain washing, washing over the windshield and the car and these flashes of light and darkness. It's one of the most, it's one of those things that only film can do, one of these scenes and for that alone, just watch it but it's it's impossibly beautiful. I feel like this film is so modern and sort of gets to where we are now and uh, I love it so can't recommend it enough. I love this movie too. I had a, at our house we had an Antonioni film fest during COVID and so I, I saw all the films in this trilogy. Monica Vitti, to me, she's kind of heaven on earth. Like, there's no one better for me. She's just one of my favorite actresses ever. And she has a smaller role in this film, but it's incredibly But also Jean Moreau, who, you know, then you see later in Elevator to the Gallows. and But like some of her sadness in her face and uh i don't know you just watch her and mastriani together it's um that party scene especially when they're playing he and vidi are playing shuffleboard with her purse basically right yeah she's incredible i mean jules and jim is one of my favorite films of all time and it is jean moreau at her absolute best i think have you seen that i'm sure you have of course yeah and she's in that one, you know, she's dressed up as a, as a boy sometimes. I mean, tomboyish. And, and yet her beauty is still sort of vibrating right through that. Yeah. And this is a French New Wave film by Francois Truffaut that actually came out in 1962. So, I mean, we should probably start preparing for the anniversary celebrations now, Michael. But I mean, this is an epic, epic, epic movie. And I love the music in it. Anyway, I'll spare you all my singing, but <laughs> it's worthy of seeing. We were discussing this at lunch with Graydon and Nathan, the future of movie theaters. And I remain, and Nathan agrees with me, I remain very bullish on movie theaters because no matter how enjoyable your house is, you simply cannot replicate the experience of going and seeing a movie in that format on the big screen. Are you surrounded by annoying people on their cell phones? Usually. Okay. Do you like to hear others crunching popcorn? It's not great. But there's a certain amount of nostalgia that I have for having seen probably thousands of movies in the theater over the years. And it's a ritual of my life that I'm not willing to give up. So I was very disappointed to see that the Arclight chain in Los Angeles is 
closing for good. Did you see that announcement? Yeah, and it also includes Cinerama, that great 1960s era theater in LA as well. Now, I remain optimistic. I'm not the only person who feels this way. I think there are going to be some great entrepreneurs who come up with inventive new concepts that don't involve like being served sushi while you're sitting down to eat. Like I don't need to eat a meal when I'm at the movie theater, like popcorn and a 68 ounce Diet Coke are all I really need. But someone needs to reinvent this concept because I'm kind of tired of watching movies on my sofa. Like get me out to the theater. Let's make it more of an event. Let's make it feel like more of a ritual again because frankly these movies deserve it you know these are great works of art and they deserve more than like me and my socks you know look part of the movie going experience and probably a lot of people who've forgotten this or everything is you know the audience gasping all at once or laughing all at once i mean is there's that thrill of whether you're sitting there in alien and you all sort of get pushed back into your seat at a moment of suspense or you're all laughing together or just the idea i mean look this new james bond film has been delayed 44 times already i'm going to go see that in the theater because I want to see that on a gigantic theater with the sound and feeling that thrill with all those other people. That's, you know, I can see it in my house a bit, but I want it. You want that experience. And I think, look, between the studios, there's a lot of money, like they'll figure it out. And I think, look, they just need to make the theaters so they you don't feel like you're sitting in a, a bus sometimes with, you know, they clean them, light them, make it a little more. It doesn't take much to make it a more enjoyable experience. And I'm sure that between, like I say, the studios needing to make money, the theater owners needing to, to, to get this right, uh, because it's, you can't just keep releasing films streaming. Yes, it's nice to watch them at home on demand, but there is. Look, and by the way, if you're 16 and you're going to go on a date, what are you going to do, right? Yes, we need some super rich, interesting people. Jeff Bezos, Lorene Powell Jobs, people like you guys figure out a solution to this because you might lose money for a while, but I guarantee you it's good for culture in the long term. You know, Netflix bought the Paris Theater in New York, which is the 571 seat beauty next to Bergdorf Goodman on 57th Street or 58th Street. And thank goodness because Netflix is using it for special event screenings, releases of its films, and it's great. We need to figure out a better way to, to use theaters and to get them back into the into the mix, so to speak, of activities. Well, you know what theaters are? They're community. And what, what have we not had for the last year and change is a lack of community and community spaces and coming together. And just like, so I think you're going to see people yearning to come back to those spaces and shared cultural moments. Yes, that's what that's what theaters give you. Yes, and we will be there. We'll be the first, we'll be in the back row, but we'll be the first people there. I'll be in the back row throwing juju piece at people. <laughs> All right, Michael, on that note, will you please read us out? <laughs> I'd be happy to. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alessandra Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan. And our deputy editors are Nathan King and Chris Garrett. Our CMO is Emily Davis and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please do subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We'll be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure and subscribe at Apple Music or Spotify. Most of all, thanks for joining us.